You've reached the High Fashion Hotline. Help! My family's hosting an epic Memorial Day barbecue, and we need to look as legendary as our spread to kick off the summer right. Get to Old Navy. Old Navy? Yep, starting tomorrow. Splash into summer with an incredible 50% off all tees, all tanks, all shorts, all dresses, and all swimwear at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Wow, 50% off all those styles? Now that's epic. So is this. Tees started just six bucks, but hurry, it ends Monday. 50% off and tees from six bucks? Old Navy, here we come. High Fashion, Old Navy. Valid 525 to 528. Excludes clearance, active, licensed flag products, and men's package. Welcome to the Inkwell, brought to you by the Speakeasy Cafe Open Mic Poetry Show. The Inkwell is a how-to show designed for writers to help them advance in their writing careers. So you've written something, now what? That's what we're here to tell you. Now, on to the show. everybody and welcome to another segment of the Inkwell. We're very excited to be putting on this show today. We have a special guest coming on with us, Cassandra Tribe. Cassandra is a second time workshop host here with us. She hosted a show a couple years ago actually that was absolutely amazing. We had people who listened to that workshop and said it absolutely changed her life in the way that they write. So I'm really, really excited to be able to bring her and share her with you guys again. I'd like to go ahead and welcome her to the show. Are you with me, Cassandra? I think I am. Can you hear me? I can hear you. <laughs> oh, good. To the <laughs> what? I said, welcome to the Inkwell. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So I'm excited you're here, and I'm really, really excited. I want to thank you so much for agreeing to do this workshop. The last one that you did with us was absolutely amazing, and we still have people who are listening to that. And, you know, I, every time I promote it, I talk about you have to listen to this because it will change your life. You know, and not just as a writer. It was just a phenomenal, a phenomenal sharing that you had with us during that show. Well, good. Thank you. I mean, I, I was glad that you asked me when I called in. It's something that I enjoy doing a lot. I'm not currently teaching writing courses right now. I was for quite some time. So it's it's nice to be getting back in and just being able to put stuff out there because it helps it helps me too because it kind of solidifies my own thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, and then I, I do all the challenges that I come up with in the workshops myself. So that also spurs me along. Well um, you've had you've been gone for a little bit and I was real excited when you called into the speakeasy and read a couple of weeks ago, and I was so thrilled to hear from you. You've had a pretty pretty rough time lately. You've had a lot of a lot of challenges of your own. What's been going on with you? Well, I sort of pulled back from everything about two or three years ago, and it was for the purpose of being able to focus and finish a big dramatic play I was work poem I'm working on called The City of Love. About two years ago, I got hit by a car while riding a bicycle, and that has kind of changed my entire life. I have I have permanent damage from it, so I can't I don't know yet whether or not I'll be able to ever perform live again. I had to relearn how to speak and control my voice 
and I have to walk with a cane and just, you know, anyone who's ever been through something like that or who deals with chronic pain and all the changes that come with it knows that just you start from scratch again. <laughs> so when I actually called in uh, just a few weeks ago, that was the first time I had read. I had just started writing again within the past eight months because I had to relearn the whole process of how to write, of how to even think about poetry because the area of my brain that got affected affected how I creatively think. So I had to find different ways to do things, you know. And then I had to get writing all the poems that I swear I will never show to anybody. But they're, they're bitter and angry. <laughs> <laughs> I, had to, I had to just get that right out of my system. <laughs> you know, but you have, better. Yeah, well, you know, you have to do that. That's part of the process, you know. And for me, part of my process is learning how to do something more with whatever I have at the moment. And right now, it's I view myself as having a very different tool set than I had before when I did the last workshop. But um, know that that's not easy to do, and it was a yeah that had to have been a handful. I can't even imagine what you were going through. But I am so proud of you because I mean you're a fighter. You don't give up ever. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's the key. It's like even if everything changes, there's still a very effective role you can play. I think one of the funniest things about the accident with a lot of what I do is I work with pain management and I work with Alzheimer's and with people in all sorts of conditions. And suddenly I was forced into the position of having to use what I taught. And that has changed everything about how I help other people. And, you know, I, for me, in the back of my mind, it was always get back to the poetry, get back to the poetry. That was one of my goals. It may not be the same as where I was before, but it's still mine and it's poetry and poetry goes places. Mine is stumbling places right now, but it's getting back. I have The City of Love, which I mentioned before. That's like a 92-page poem, and there are 23 different characters in it. Yeah, what is what you're doing with that? Well, it's designed for the stage. It's written according to someone who contacted me about a year ago. They were only about, they were trying to put together a list of 100 uh, living writers who actually worked in the old dramatic poetry form. And I was number 36 that they had found. And they were having difficulties finding any more because this is a very, the form I'm using is very traditional. The, uh, the act of writing poetry for the stage is starting to come back. A lot of people don't know that most of the plays, the older plays, most of the older everything were originally written as poems. You didn't have playwrights, you had poets. They just happened to write the stage. So come the spring, I have a, as yet, I'm not going to give the name, but it's a respected theater company in the Northeast. They're taking the poem in the spring, and I'm going to start working with their dramaturgist. Now, the dramaturgist, what they are in charge of is working with me to realize, you know, the stage directions, where the, where the poets will be on stage, what will go on. I don't have to do that as the poet, thank God. I just have to get them the words and a few little, and then this happens, you know, tucked in in italics. 
and it's the dramaturges that actually creates the form that is followed on stage, and then it should debut next year. So How that's going to be... About that. that is phenomenal. I'm excited about it. It took me a long time to get here. I mean, accident notwithstanding. I started, I, it was something I wanted to do for over 10 years, and I knew I wasn't there yet. So I started, first I wrote a poem called Monster, which was, for a lot of reasons, I wrote that poem, but part of it was the structure. Can I carry a story all the way through, you know, with a complicated character? And then I wrote The Demon of Providence. And there's actually two characters in The Demon, even though only one speaks. And I did the little film of them where they're interacting, so I play with that. And then I actually did put on a poem on stage with Jay Chatel and Michelle Santil called The Language of Salmon. And we are radically different poets. I mean, you can't get more radically different than myself, Jay, and Michelle. And what we did is we took the theme, we took the name, and then we all wrote poems in response to it. And then I had the dramaturgist role where I took the poems and I wove them together. So the three of us were on stage, each of us reading our own poems, but it sounded like we were reading one large poem together. And that was, once I got done with that, I knew I was ready to move forward with the city because I felt like, you know, it's small steps, but you sort of, as you find out what you don't know, you go try it, and that's how you learn it. If you hear any small screeches in the background, because he just started firing up, that would be my newest companion, Harry, the parrot, <laughs> who is a year and two months old, fully flighted and full of himself, and he loves poetry, and he loves when I talk on the phone. <laughs> Oh, no. That's awesome. Yeah. Oh, he loves Skype. <laughs> he loves to really? see people. <laughs> yeah. Um, That's cool. Well, we look forward to hearing from him throughout the show. Say what I have for you today as, you know, I, actually having the recovery time down kind of put me in a place where I had to watch and listen more. And when you asked me about doing a workshop, I jumped at it because there's something I've been noticing more and more poets doing besides wanting to work on stage. And that five five years ago, eight years ago, when you found groups of poets online, there might be a poetry challenge, you know, or maybe they were posting um, their own poems, people were giving feedback. And now it seems there's a lot more poetry groups where they're centered around a cause. So what I wanted to look at, because that plays into creating poetry that can be performed on stage or staging poets together. I mean, here you have a central theme. You know, how do you make a poem that's, that serves the call? So that's when I came up with the idea for the ex – it's a writing exercise called Binding the Moon, um, and that's what this workshop's going to be about. I love what that title. Think? Isn't it a nice title? It, it was hard to give that – it was a hard title to give up. <laughs> you know <laughs> – I, I can understand that completely because when I when you sent me the information on the workshop, I was looking at that and I'm thinking, oh, oh, um, well. <laughs> I like that too. Well, here's, here's the good part. In the writing exercise, that is your title. <laughs> oh, great. Okay, I'm happy then. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's the first I'm, part of the really exercise. Oh, no, no, I want that one. <laughs> Yeah, the first part of the exercise is the title has to be Binding the Moon. But I'll get into that more a little bit later. Yeah, that sucks giving that one up. <laughs> I actually honestly think it, I only write... You didn't give it up, you just gave it wings. Yeah, I, that's a good way of looking at it. I actually think I only write poetry so I can come up with titles. <laughs> <laughs> that's 
have. So before we get started, I want to, I have a track of yours called Executioner's Song, and I would like to kind of segue between, you know, our chatty, our chatty part of this and you starting the workshop by playing that, if that's okay with you. That would be good because I actually reference that poem in a section of, in the section at the end of the workshop where I'm going to ask you a question about whether or not you think I did something well in this poem. So, oh, you didn't yeah. tell me there was a quiz at the end. Well, the quiz is about me. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about me. <laughs> all right, you guys, this is, a, this is a piece called Executioner's Song by Cassandra Tribe, and then as soon as it's over, the mic's all yours. Just go ahead and get into your workshop, okay? Okay, great. Here we go. My hour of worship is midnight, the moon bright off the flame. I am the hope of forgotten men, God in a world without blame. Sometimes it cushions with deed. Food is proof of kindness, kindness bargained for peace. Prayers are said, permission loomed, so it begins. Death enters the room. The life that waited retreats from the world. The soul is forgotten, the body pieced by worms. Death will go back to living until he is needed again. Memory will be argued by no one called a friend. Compared to a soldier fetid for killing in the name of caprice, death in the peace is kept hidden, blind justice fails its increase. Even on battlefield, there is no faith. Even in war, rules contain blame. At home, where soldiers are bootless, Death is recruited and paid, service requested and rendered, secrecy hides all blame. Judas fed coins to soil, the only seeds that ever grew, trees to watch the world, and man as he stumbles through. Bright moon finds swaying face, to hide and reveal again, flashes of effort misplaced, spun chance revealed forsaken, in solemn place. The body, strapped down and blinded, still communicates. Press wafer provides the food, food to assuage the weak, leaving the body hungry, crying one last speech. Bright moon finds swaying face to hide and reveal again. Flashes of effort misplaced, spun chance reveals forsaken. I have gone to husbands who were fathers. I have gone to wives who were mothers. Wanting then to serve, solid food better. The plate they gave me was empty, though it was turned just so. Hoping I wouldn't notice, broke finish, mold, and go. 
brother and sister after forgot me and argued on how, when wine had been flowing so freely, their cups were empty now. Not agreeing with any reason, they decided each other to slur, the wine soaked into the ground, no pool of bliss anymore. No one in this world that loves secrets revealed wants to know the why of I am. Even the Christ on the hill was asked the source of his plan. I am the secret son of faith who chose a different stand, following words inspired but written by human hands. My temples you'll find in castles filled with forgotten men, each of them sacrificed food to men's growing sin. I am the one who goes on, the one who should be condemned, but I make the sleep of the world quiet dismissed for kin. One day the world will go blind, and in blindness finally see. The flame on my altar will fade, and midnight will never be. Till then I am always invited, false promise of life believed, for I am the Christ of the chamber. These castles only I enter, yet will I both now and now. The name of the workshop today is Binding the Moon, and the tagline for it is Creating Poetry That Can Change the World. So what we're talking about today isn't poetry really about your life um, or your experience or things like that. We're talking about poetry that is specifically written for to create a change for social justice. Um, it could be writing for cause. It could be writing for social justice. It could be writing to change a cultural attitude, writing for faith or writing for politics. Uh, the exercise, Binding the Moon, this is part one of the exercise. I'm going to give you the easy, actually, I'll give you the whole exercise in one basic thing. Your title is Binding the Moon. Binding the Moon is your main symbol or metaphor, and you just write a poem that concerns the cause of your choice. Now, to break that down further so you understand what you have to think about to create a poem that really reaches out and changes something or creates the opportunity for change, there's a lot more going on than just, you know, writing in the moment. I mean, we all, we all start somewhere. And um, when we tend to start writing poetry, we tend to start at an early age. I think poetry is one of the few arts that has its genesis in adolescent hormones. So we, you know, we write because we're ready to explode, because all these emotions are coming out. Our brains are still developing. We have no other way to say them than in rhyme and meter, to write them for ourselves, sometimes to share them. I mean, we write about love, grief, longing, lust, power, poverty. We write it both, both we're in the process of writing ourselves into being, 
because we know we see things that, you know, as we grow and mature, we see things in the world that, oh, you know, we don't agree with or we want. You know, we want to be that. We want to be like that. This is the age of heroes. You know, we we are desperate to make a record of our lives and to, and to find out that who we are and that what we feel is valid and important. For a lot of people out there, it's that poetry journal from junior high or high school. That is all they had in their life telling them that they were worth something. You know, that type of poetry is extremely powerful. You might look at it, you know, as you get to an advanced age, you might look back and go, oh, I hope no one sees this because it's so awful. But don't don't insult the person who wrote that. You know, the person who wrote that was you. And it was you in the moment at that age being very real and very true to yourself and life as you understood it. As we grow older, our understandings change, and we start to look around and say, oh, you know, I wouldn't have been and had such a, a, a horrible, horrendous time growing up if bullying wasn't, you know, so prevalent in this culture. How can I help change this? Well, you do help change this by you start creating things that shift either shift attitudes or open the doors to discussion. Um, and there are, there are very, very few people, you can trust me on this, there are very few people in life who want life to stay the same. You know, and of those very few people, almost none of them, none of them write poetry. Poetry, no matter what or why you're writing it, contains longing and desire. Either it's you want to, you long to preserve a moment that you know is going to change, so you memorialize it, you celebrate it in your poetry, or you're wanting so much for something to be different that you're writing almost like a prayer to it to make it come into being. You know, poetry is not stagnant. You know, it's not about, you know, oh, I wish everything could be the same stuff, because if, if that's the way you think, you tend not to write poetry. Um, Poets are driven by change because they are the recorders of change. A lot of people in this day and age who write poetry struggle to kind of find where to fit this in their life and in the great scheme of things because it's not like, I mean, the whole arts and the purpose of the arts in society and in community has really shifted and there's a lot of people get a lot of flack. Oh, you're going to be an artist. You're going to be a writer. You're going to be a poet. Well, you're not going to make any money at that. You're not going to do this. And that's not what it's all about. Poets are the recorders of change. They are the recorders of cause and effect. We are humanity's memory, conscious, and heart. Poetry is East essential for civilization, and it's essential for the health of civilization. You know, but uh, when you get to the part where you're starting to leave behind, you know, writing very, very, very personal pieces, and you're starting to look towards, well, you know, maybe this isn't solely about me, but there's this thing going on, and I so want this to change. You know, and now you're starting to write for a cause. I mean, there were tons of poetry came out 
as soon as the incident at Ferguson hit, there was a real spike online of poetry that is specifically about this cause that also related personally to people's experience. Again, that's an example of being a recorder. You aren't just yourself, you're everybody else too. Uh, but the problem is, is that when we start to want to write for about causes, we for some reason tend to forget ourselves. You know, we, we leave too much of the poet out of the content, you know, and we get into almost like a reporter-like fashion of describing, you know, describing horrible events, describing other people's reactions. But the thing about poetry is no matter what you do with it and whether you're speaking to a global audience or you're preaching to the choir is that it's the, the power of poetry is it's coming from within one person. It goes back to that idea that what you feel, who you are, is not only valid, you are needed in the world. Every single person makes a difference. If if, here's the big if, if they put forth. As poets, what you put forth are your words. You should cherish and honor your words. You should love them, but not that much. We'll get to that at the other end. You know, so the first thing you have to do when you want to start writing about a cause, you know, or writing for a specific purpose, you know, like the executioner's song, that is about the death penalty. You know, so, okay, so I came out and said, oh, I want to do a poem about the death penalty. So the first thing you, you want to do is you want to know what you want to accomplish. Why are you writing this poem? Now, with the executioner song, my goal with the poem was not to get people to think one way or the other about the death penalty. It was just to point out how it exists within culture and affects our society. You know, that's what I wanted to accomplish. I wanted to open the door to debate that was not based in emotion. And that, thankfully, has been what it has done to a degree. Um, and I have to interrupt myself because the, the parrot is about to trigger a traction play. So I'll just move him right off of the studio. So the first thing you need to know is what you want to accomplish. Why are you writing this poem? It's, you know, because I feel like it, because I'm responding to it. This, this is a good place to begin. Okay, so you responded to it. That's good. But what do you want to do with it? You know, what do you want to accomplish? Do you want to let people know how you feel? Do you want them to let them know this is right, this is wrong, this could have been handled better? The second thing you want to do is understand your passion. Okay, you want to write about this. Why? Why is this topic so important to you and more important than the other topic over here? Passion is a very unique and individual thing. You can't be passionate about everything because then you just wind up being tired. You know, when you hear someone say that I'm, you know, I advocate for social justice, that's not ever, ever true. You know, you're most likely, you may advocate for broad social justice, but you're only passionate about certain parts. You may be committed to everything. But understanding your passion is very important because it's going to tell you which causes you should be writing for and which you should leave to another as a poet. 
The third thing you have to do is know where your strengths are, and then you have to find the weaknesses and the strengths. Usually you get told, oh, know your strengths and weaknesses, work on your weaknesses. Now, you may be weak in an area. You may not rhyme well. You may not, you know, have be capable of perfect pentameter or, you know, whatever it may be. Well, you know what? That may just never happen for you. Once you get to a certain point where you're comfortable writing, look at your strengths. You know, look at maybe you have a stellar delivery style. Maybe it's consistency that's your strength. Maybe you have the ability with words to paint a vibrant picture. You know, now look at those strengths and see how to make them stronger. The stronger your strengths become, the less the weaknesses matter. You can always go back and work on areas you know need improving, but you should also always pay attention to what works for you and nurture it. It's like, it's like anything else in your life. If you have a good relationship and you want to keep a good relationship, you have to take what's good about that relationship and make it stronger. That's what allows you to handle anything else that's less than perfect. Um, so going back to the exercise. So the, the exercise is called Binding the Moon again. That is your title. You are to use that phrase as your main title and imagery and to create a poem that addresses a cause you are passionate about. So here's how you start. First of all, the first question is, what are you passionate about and why? That's trickier than it sounds, especially in the digital age. You don't really realize how deeply you are manipulated by the Internet, especially in regards to social media. You may have seen the blip in the news where everyone got upset a couple months ago about Facebook tweaking people's news items to see if then their posts became more depressed or happy. Well, the thing is, everything you see on the Internet, everything you take in, if you, if you remember that phrase, you are what you eat, well, you eat with your eyes, too. You know, in, on your social media accounts, you eat with your, you're eating with your eyes. Whatever get thrown, gets thrown at you, you take in, and it's going to affect you emotionally. So you might feel like you're very passionate about something, but it might be a passing passion. It might be a result of all this attention placed on something that is something that, yes, it concerns you, but is it a passion? Maybe not. So what you want to do is make a list. And on this is kind of like the litmus test for what you're passionate about. So you make a list of the causes you're passionate about right now. And then you, when you're done with that list, I want you to go back and circle everything on that list you were passionate about three years ago. Now, of course, you can't, if you're saying you're, you can't say you're passionate about an incident. It's what the incident represents that would go on the list. So it wouldn't be, you know, something like the Ferguson shooting. It would be what this Ferguson shooting was about, you know, racial discrimination, racial profiling. That would be what would go on your list. So whichever ones you circled that two or three years ago were also on your radar, that's where your real passion lies. If you are in a place in your life where you're just sort of broadening your horizons, then don't worry about it. Just become aware of what currently is arousing that emotional passion. And then when you do the list two years later, 
you'll start to see it. This is also how you start to identify your purpose in life because there will be, they always define commitment as commitment is what you remain um, present for after the passion is worn off. So this is how you define your whole purpose and, and, and path in life, too. Um, and you want to make sure that the, you remember the exercise binding the moon is not, you're not writing reactively. It is not a poem in a reaction to a specific event, although specific events may be used in the poem. So, you know, for example, I get the idea to write the executioner's song because of the particularly horrific execution of a man who, after he died, was proven innocent. I mean, within weeks after he died. Um, I didn't choose to write about the injustice of his death. That would have been a very different poem. I didn't choose to write anything that particularly slammed the death penalty. I chose to write about the sway execution can have over society, whether you agree with it or not. Whether you like it or not, it's present, and it has an effect. You know, and that all changed the types of metaphor that I, and symbolism that I was using. So once you have that list of what you're passionate about, choose just one that you think you can relate to the title. This is the next part, and this is where Poems are, are made or broken when it comes to being effective when writing for a cause or writing to reach beyond. And that is you have to decide who your audience is going to be. Are you going to be, you know, preaching to the choir? Or are you going to be talking to a, a challenge? And that's the audience who may not even be aware of your cause. You know, the choir is everyone that already agrees with you. The symbolism is going to be specific to the instances. You can, you can call on more specific details that, like, people in the know who are familiar with it, well, they're going to recognize it. You know, like um, Ferguson, if you're writing about racism, you're going to write about Taylor Alessandra. If you're writing about transgender violence and LGBT discrimination, you're going to write about Sarnia. If you're writing about terrorism and extremism, you know, just even throwing those names, uh, using any symbolism, visual symbol tied with those, you know, people and incidences are immediately going to trigger backstory in people's heads who are in your choir. So it's like a shortcut you can use that's only effective with people who are already generally going to agree with what you're going to say. So now what you also want to remember is that when you choose the choir as your audience, this is a very important audience to have. And I'll get to that in a little bit. So from within these very specific instances, you're going to draw the symbolism that is recognized craft through metaphor. Remember that your title and key phrase is binding the moon. Now, binding can mean many different things. It can be tying two things together to strengthen them, or tying things together, together to restrict them, or tying one thing alone so it cannot move. Now, here's just something to think about when it comes to imagery about binding. Just about everyone listening is probably familiar with the historical practice of the Chinese foot binding. Um, it was awful, awful practice done for just strange reasons, mostly fashion. Um, 
But for the first time ever, and this is recently, you can still find it on the BBC magazine, the last few surviving women who had their feet bound were interviewed. The one common thing they said was that we were so poor, it was the only thing that made us stand out. And it increased our chances of getting noticed, getting married, and getting out of poverty. Now, that was true until the practice went out of style and, the, and when later was persecuted by the Communist Party. It started as a fashion of the very rich to show that they had servants and didn't have to walk anywhere. And it was adopted by the very poor, you know, as an enticement that they were valuable to have. If you notice, one of the recurring themes is the concept of how valuable the individual is. So when you're, you're preaching to the choir, you know, the, the thing is, within all of our instances that raise our passions, there is a deeply personal emotion and desire represented. There's something hidden in there. You're not just reacting to somebody blowing something up or blowing up the Boston Marathon. You're not reacting to, you know, a white officer gunning down somebody who was wanted on Chuck fraud. You know, there's something behind that. You, the person, it's making you feel something, and that is very important to know. Everything that happens to you makes you feel something, and what you feel may not be related to what happened. You may have someone who surprise you, pop out of a brand-new car and give you a check for $100,000, and you'll get angry, and the anger that comes out of that is coming from someplace else that what happened has triggered in you. So you have to unravel your emotions tied to your cause. So when you are preaching to the choir, you know, you're talking to, you're writing this poem for people who are going to agree to you, you want more than just amen. You want more than people to think, oh, that's fabulous, I agree with you. You want to deepen their commitment to a, the cause by helping to reveal to them what that buried emotion and desire is, because chances are you all share it. You know, one of the best ways to do this is to look at your own emotion and desire when this passion touches. You know, you use it to build the imagery that will connect with others that are already there with you. If you don't know what it is, think about how the topic makes you feel in your body. You know, where does Ferguson hurt? In your head, in your stomach, does it make all your muscles tense? You know, that's what you want to find out because that shows you why it hits you so hard, why you're so passionate about it. You know, if it makes your head hurt and brings you down, your sense of justice is offended. If it turns your stomach, then you are responding physically to a fear of the, of the pain and suffering being shared by you. If your muscles are tensing, then it's fight or flight. You are either in fear of your life, it reminds you of the daily fear you are in for your life, or you are angry because it's a reminder of how daily you feel angry about this type of situation. So now, I'm going to play for you an example of a poem that is written um, to the choir. But before I do that, some of the best choir music for social justice right now is found in rap music. If you've never learned anything about the poetic structure of rap music, I really recommend 
that you spend some time on YouTube and go to a channel, and this is all one word, how to wrap DVD. They have like a four-video series. It's a tutorial that breaks down the poetic rap structure so you can understand it better. So when you listen, even if you don't like rap music, you'll start to tell who's very good and who is not at all. Um, so I'm going to play for you, and this is, this is the speaking to the choir. I'm going to play for you an example of a poem written to the choir. It comes from one of the rap groups that's considered to be the best social justice rap group around. This song is all about the high numbers of minorities in prisons and racial inequality in the justice system. So here is a brief clip from the group The Roots performing uh, just a part of Don't Feel Right. most important about this audience and what you create for them. You can't 
you cannot, and I'll say this a third time, you cannot win them over by telling them something is wrong. You have to relate to them something that they will hear and the images and meanings sink in rather than being immediately recognizable. So you have to, you can't just come out and say, well, you see this, this is wrong, and you're a bad person for not recognizing this. Because if somebody if isn't even on someone's radar, they're going to shut down on you. So instead, you go, look at this, and you paint a picture. You tell a story. Choir, actually, let me change that. Speaking to the choir, you'll tell more of a story. When you're speaking to the challenge, you're painting more of a picture. The story that you tell is a little bit more abstract. It's abstract to allow people to find themselves within it that may not feel they have the same experience. You know, so you're, you're creating the snapshot image in their heads that you're writing for the challenge. It can be very visual, and you have to find a way, and this is another very important thing that you really need to remember, you have to find a way to place your words in their body. And I'm going to repeat that again. Place your words in their body. Now, as poets, when we first start writing poetry, it's all about our body. How are we feeling? And, you know, we're writing the poetry, especially if you talk to, you know, when somebody who's writing poetry because of something awful that happened, you know, they're writing because nobody else has experienced it. And that is true. No one else experiences anything the way that you do. But all people experience the same emotions, and in most cases, they feel the emotions in the same place in their body. This doesn't mean that you always have to write like you're writing a medical description, but it's the concept. Your words must reflect what happens in your body. Memories get stored in your body. They get stored in odd places. Where are they stored in you? Well, that might be where they are in someone else, too. Not the same memory, but a similar one. We are, in essence, all the same person. We just have different experiences. You know, that's why we can connect. We can have altruistic moments. We can be charitable and compassionate and care about strangers because we recognize, you know, take take the, the old phrase, there but for the grace of God go I. You know, there but for my circumstances or my experiences am I. When you write for the challenge, you are writing for you with another life. So the same way that you use identifying how you physically feel to identify the emotions is what you're going to reverse to win over the challenge. These people aren't going to relate to you talking about how you feel and what you think. They're going to respond to someone talking about how they feel and how they think, which is a subtle act that takes practice to achieve. You know, one of the best places to find it is just watch commercials. They are masters at presenting how you feel, you know, or what you want. You know, you can learn, a poet can learn from everything. You know, an example Here's an example, and this is a very um, cut-and-dry example of what it means to write your words into somebody else's body. This poem actually uses body imagery and all body references so that 
you know, the reader can connect to what this writer is talking about. Um, and this, this poem was actually part of a body of work that was a result in the poet winning a Nobel Prize. Um, that is probably one of the ways that you can tell if you've been successful at reaching your challenge audience because it means people that even don't read poetry are reading you. They are connecting. Your cause, your topic is reaching people who would never give it a second thought. I mean, that's an extreme, but there's, there's other ways to do that. You know, this poem is about torture, totalitarian regimes, oppression, and injustice. It is quite simply called tortures. And it's by Wislawa Sysimborska. And listen to the difference in the word choices and imagery, whereas the roots were going for a direct experience located in one specific outside place. Wislawa is speaking to a set of experiences located inside the body. Wislawa Zimborska tortures. Nothing has changed. The body is susceptible to pain. It must eat and breathe air and sleep. It has thin skin and blood right underneath. An adequate stock of teeth and nails. Its bones are breakable. Its joints are stretchable. In tortures, all this is taken into account. Nothing has changed. The body shudders as it shuddered before the founding of Rome and after. In the 20th century before and after Christ, tortures are as they were. It's just the earth that's grown smaller. And whatever happens seems right on the other side of the wall. Nothing has changed. It's just that there are more people Besides the old offenses, new ones have appeared, real, imaginary, temporary, and none. But the how with which the body responds to them was, is, and ever will be a howl of innocence according to the time-honored scale and tonality. Nothing has changed. Maybe just the manners, ceremonies, dances, Yet the movement of the hands in protecting the head is the same. The body writhes, jerks, and tries to pull away. Its legs give out, it falls, the knees fly up. It turns blue, swells, salivates, and bleeds. Nothing has changed. Except for the course of boundaries, the line of forests, coasts, deserts, and glaciers, Amid these landscapes traipses the soul, disappears, comes back, draws nearer, moves away, alien to itself, elusive, at times certain, at others uncertain of its own existence, while the body is, and is, and is, and has no place of its own. So that is, well, I've given you now, I gave you the roots, and I gave you something from Wiswala, Wiswala, and they are the epitome of preaching to the choir and 
speaking to the challenge audience. What do you gain and lose with each? You know, when you make your decision, after you know what your passion is and your cause, when you decide which audience you're going to write for, which is better? Well, the, the, the truth is that one audience choice isn't better than another. When you are dealing with causes, you need both approaches. You know, because you need the people who are already there to stay there and keep the motivation and keep their heart in it. And then you need to come over and you have to get more people aware of the cause that you are addressing. You know, so you do need to do both. And it's always a wonderful exercise to, like, take Binding the Moon and write one for the choir and one for your general audience. You know, what you have to watch out for, because, you know, I gave you two of the top-of-the-line examples now, so you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you an example of something that almost but didn't quite make it either way. <laughs> um, what you have to watch out for is getting the waters muddied. And this happens when you take a poem written to be for a challenge audience and then structure it so it only appeals to a narrow group or vice versa. You know, um, when I was in the Army, I spent three years in a combat zone. Um, one of the songs that came out during that time, because you get very music-driven when you're in the Army in combat. It's amazing. You know, um, it's one of the few things I think the movies that write about the wars is that it is driven by music. Um, one of the songs we just could not get enough of was called Home of the Brave. It spoke to us on a very personal level, and we did share it, you know, as a group. It held everything about the combat experience that you just can't get if you haven't been there. So that is huge brownie points for the choir. I mean, Home of the Brave spoke to the choir that we were already there. Now, the, the issue was the song was written about combat, the experience of combat, but it was kind of meant to be sort of an anti-war song. Now, as an active soldier in combat, you don't tend to listen to a lot of anti-war songs. I mean, maybe you do a little bit, but what got us was the experience. It was a non-judgmental presentation of the experience. Okay, so now the choir has now lost the point because now the intention is not reaching the correct choir. You know, we're not hearing it the way the people intended it to be written. So when I came back, what I found out was that this song, this it was supposed to be an anti-war song, um, had very limited play here, um, but was very strong among a certain group, and they were mostly, you know, mid-college kids kind of thing. And they read it. They had no connection to the wars or any wars or anything. That was just news items they buzzed through. But they read it kind of as a sad breakup song. So it's this song has a lot of the lyrics have tremendous amounts of potential, but it doesn't quite get it right. And part of the reason is instead of looking for, you know, imagery that relates to the body or imagery that relates to a shared experience, they went for cliches and slogans. What you'll hear, if you're of a certain age, you'll remember it, is take the train to the plane. And that was a slogan in New York City. So here is the almost but not quite um, good poem for a cause. Um, this is The Nails performing Home of the Brave. <laughs> ¶¶ 
Oh, God of hell, I said I love the sea that the devil gave me to wear a favorite. Where the whores are dancing on the tabletop and the jukebox plays. Apocalyptic bebop. Do it. Send yourself text message. Email yourself. All you have to do is 
keep little words and phrases, carry a book with you, anything. And eventually all of that catches up to you and poetry will come out of it. Now, I'm gonna, I, just to put some things in time reference, the very first piece we played, The Roots, um, which sounds very timely today, that was written in 2005. Tortures was written in the 70s. Uh, Home of the Brave was like a 90s thing. But there, there are some examples of poetry written for social justice that were done so well, they literally ring today. And no matter where you read them or to whom you read them, even if they don't, aren't familiar with the specific text of the items, they are understood and they are proof, 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 proof that poetry can change the world. The first example I'm going to read, I'm just going to read to you, just four, four or five lines of it, six lines, um, is not only all of that fabulousness wrapped up, it is also an example of perfect, perfect iambic pentameter. You can go get out your books to figure out that one. I've never mastered that. Um, so this is perfect iambic pentameter. As far as skilled poetry, it's phenomenal. As far as a poem that effectively changed the world, it did. It is relevant today. We fight about it all the time. So this is Thomas Jefferson's small verse written in perfect iambic pentameter. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, that is the opening to the Declaration of Independence. And it isn't a reach to say that's perfect iambic pentameter, because what you don't realize is when I said that the plays used to be written as poems, most of the, the um, introductions to legal documents, to diplomatic documents, were also written as poetry because they are designed to be orally repeated and easily remembered. You know, we don't do this anymore. Now you can't even read, you would, you can't even breathe through one sentence of the way stuff is written now. But it was, the Declaration of Independence was written as poetry, the introduction to it, so that it could be memorized, so it could be written within the body of everybody in America and in everybody who heard it. That is why it is so powerful and so relevant. The next one is, um, I'm going to read to you, that's another perfect example. It's very, very short. Um, it's by A.E. Hausman. And A.E. Hausman is known for, it fluctuates what he's known for, but one of the primary things he was known for in the 1800s was he was a child work, a worker advocate. He really wanted um, the child workers, the rules to be changed because they were basically slaves when they came in. And he worked a great deal for worker independence and rights. And this is his, into my heart, an air that kills. Into my heart, an air that kills. From yon far country blows. What are those blue remembered hills? What spires, what farms are those? That is a land of lost content. I see it shining plain. The happy highways where I went and cannot come again. 
no matter who you read this to, you know he's talking about somebody in a city remembering the country where they came from and the freedom of that country and the cleanliness of it. He's not in this poem directly saying, you know, the child working laws, labor laws have got to be changed. It's awful. He's not showing me a child slaving at a loom. He's showing me what it's like to to miss something, to desire something. He is showing me what it is like to feel trapped. And this is why this poem was considered hugely effective in the passing of legislation to change the child labor laws in the 1800s. So back to the, the exercise, Binding the Moon. So now you know a little bit more about how to start selecting your imagery and language for your poem. So you start with your story or image, write it down in full prose, like paragraphs, so you know all the details before writing the poem. Anytime you write a poem about something, just write it out like a diary entry. You know, that's not the poem. You just want to get everything out so you can see it on paper because it prompts more from you. That's why. As you start writing it out, you'll fill in the gaps you haven't realized were there. Then you're going to learn how to edit. Learning to edit is essential between, for any poem. Um, for this style, you go between the prose and the poem to make sure you have said all the things you wanted to say in the best way possible. And you want to edit to bring emotion forward, not to push it away. Edit with rhythm, rhyme, and style in mind, and that keeps your emotion lively. Do not edit for word choice until the end. And when you choose a word, it better be cho chosen for rhythm, rhyme, and style reasons. Because very often we can get a little too fancy with our word choices and it will kill a poem if it doesn't carry itself through in the actual rhythm. It's okay to use a word that people don't, you know, readily understand as long as you change that rhythm enough so they have an idea of what it means and they keep going forward and they'll look it up later, they will. I trust me, I use enough words like that and people do look them up. You want to edit for continuity. Check and make sure that every time you describe something, you describe it again in the same way. You also want to play with foreshadowing and learn to switch time frames in the poem, too. You know, that's a tricky thing to go backwards and forwards in time in a poem. The foreshadowing can cover a lot of ground, suggest something in a sentence, and fill it out later. And that literally can create a very tight poem that everybody gets. Uh, but it's going to be that word choice that's going to allow people to let things they don't understand slide because they trust they'll know later. Um, you want to edit for symbolism. Circle every metaphor symbol you use in that poem and make sure it matches your intended audience. You know, when um, the nails are talking about uh, God of hell, how I love the suit that the devil gave me to wear in Beirut, every person I was with, knew exactly what they were talking about, the average person on the street is not going to know. You know, the same thing with the roots. The roots, every single symbol and metaphor the roots chose matches their choir audience. And every symbol that Wizlawa chose matched her challenged audience. Then, this is important, you need to edit for reading for speaking. This is very, very, very important. And this is when places like the Speakeasy Cafe really work to your advantage. When you write a poem, there are two different versions of it. 
There is the one that is read from a piece of paper, and then there is the one that is heard. Do not just think that you can read a poem you have written down. It's going to the way words are heard are come in differently to the listener than the way they are heard in the head of someone who is reading. So you really need to create two different versions of your poem. And the last thing is to, to get feedback. Call in and read your version of Binding the Moon. You know, don't tell us what it's about, but let the audience tell you what they hear. You know, they are the best source of editing feedback you can have. And let, let them say, you know, because you all got the same title, Binding the Moon. So nobody knows what anybody's writing about. So let's see if we can know or if we can get close enough to it to let you gauge how successful you've been. And don't be afraid to, to write and rewrite. This type of poetry is very different from personal poems or narrative poems. I mean, you should also look online for different groups that solicit poetry related to specific causes. Off the, the top of my head, there's a very lively group on Facebook about uh, poets writing about SB 1070, um, and it has expanded the cause to really cover that. Um, and above all else, as a writer of anything, you must remember to treat your ideas like children. Nurture them, love them, tell them no when it's in their best interest, and then give them all the help they need to make their dreams come true when that's what it needs to be. Everything you think, everything you feel, everything you write down is vital to every person in the world because every individual in the world is necessary. You are valid. What you feel, what you think is valid and it is important. The world can't go forward or backward without everybody participating. So please get that shoebox and keep the stuff that didn't quite work out. Because when you're writing every day, because you no longer have writer's block, you just write, and sometimes it works out, and most of the time it doesn't. You keep it because you'll know when you've learned something that lets you go back to a past idea and make it real. You know, to end this, um, I did want to ask you, there's two things. One, I wanted to ask you, knowing about now about the choir, and knowing that the challenge audience, I want you to think about that first poem of mine that you heard, the executioner's song. I already told you, oh, it's one award, and blah, 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 blah. But do you think, first of all, which audience do you, I kind of told you, for which audience do you think I was trying to write for? And how successful do you think I was? And you feel free to, to, you know, hit me up in the chat room and, and tell me right here and now. Because a part of being a poet is being able to listen to feedback. You know, if I would gotten that poem perfect, oh, my goodness, I'd never have to write about that subject again. Now, would I? But I do, because even I know it's not what it could be. But it always helps to have good, constructive feedback. So now I'm going to leave you with another poem that's um, also in the same group traveling with the executioner's song. And this is one that's written about domestic violence. 
And I want you to think again about which audience, and this one you have no pre-knowledge about. I'm just telling you it's about domestic violence. That I will tell you. I'm giving that away. But I want you to try, try and decide which audience am I speaking to. Is this the choir or the challenge? And how well did I do it? So I'm going to close by playing Striking a Match. Striking a Match. Promise of many things. If I have chosen to pour gasoline on myself, on others, on things, then the promises of destruction that will have no meaning. For no two people shifting weed. Or the ash shall agree. And why I struck the flame. Houses will be left without them. People will be chosen to blame and if anything of me is not of me is that will be examined. Do not believe. The nature of destruction is to destroy all meaning. Striking a match holds the promise of many things. If that match sparks a flame that flares to a candle, then the smallest part of life is entrapped. With Flickering boundary. It's borders Lorn at the blaze of night. And change. In that small circle of light, vision lacks clarity. And life has the substance of shine. And no two people shall agree. For the nature of flames and fire is to disappear. Striking a match holds the promise of many things. If that match falls on wood pile just so, then flame feeds fire. Light cannot help but be cast. Reveal what has been and what is yet to come. Yet fires by nature consume themselves, or what is foolish enough.
and void. And no two people will survive the coolness of night on the fire dark, or the hunger of a fire or the nature of being consumed is to stay to where there's nothing No one person can survive in darkness. For each and all are beyond their control. In striking the match, there is a promise. So that concludes the workshop part of our show. And um, I'm hoping that Cassandra is still on the line with me. Let me check real quick. Cassandra, are you still here? Hello. Hello. Hi. Are you still there? Yeah. Is this Cassandra? Yes, it is. Which, Which area code is yours? 401. Uh, I'm 401-654. Okay. Right. Yeah. Okay. I gotcha. Good. All right. Awesome. <laughs> All right. So we're going to move on to some other things here real quick. Also taking your calls. If you'd like to call in and speak with Cassandra, if you have questions about anything, the call-in number is 347-843-4409. And I want to um, you know, apologize to those of you who are listening online but are not able to get into the chat room. Uh, There are some very bad issues with that tonight, but we appreciate you being here. Those of you in the chat room, just don't leave. Okay. We do have some callers online right now, and um, if you would like to speak with Cassandra, uh, we have 585 um, in the lineup, but the rest of you, 
uh, 1 Sapien, and 928. If you guys would like to speak with her, go ahead and press 1 on your phone, and we'll put you in the lineup for us to bring you on. Cassandra, that was amazing. Thank you. I had I really love that you asked me to do that. Uh-huh. Do you can do as many as you want. You have an open invitation. <laughs> Anytime. <Thank> you, <laughs> yeah. No, I, no, I really... It, you always pop up at the right time when I need to really sit and put things together for myself. So it worked. Oh, it was incredible. The Executioner song, I'm going to close the show with that because I want people to, okay. now that, because we opened the show with it and it's kind of what you've based this workshop on was that poem. Um, mm-hmm. And so I want people to be able to hear it again after they've heard everything that you've had to say. So I am going to close the show with that just so you know. But I wanted okay. to talk about that um in the chat room striking a match they were talking uh, sean was talking about your video to that um yeah. and the one that goes the video that goes to the executioner song absolutely blew my mind you did some amazing thing with things with your videos and had great success with them you want to tell us a little bit about your the videos um, the, that you do the video started as an accidental thing um i didn't set out to start making videos it just sort of happened one day because I had a little Walmart camera. And I started to like um, how it let me really control the performance and create a whole mood. And I just kept doing it, kept doing it. And by the time I got to the Executioner song and Striking a Match, and there's another one called Requiem for a God, they were actually getting invited to be in different film festivals around the world. And um, the Executionist song has actually been, it's been a featured film on the Smalls uh, in England, and it was also uh, featured in the Herning International Festival, and Requiem for a God actually was one of the winners of the 2010 Herning um, Festival. And Striking a Match wound up, it is actually touring with the Executionist song, it's still on tour, throughout the European Union uh, in a special art exhibit where they invited different artists to do basically presentation pieces on what they were considered to be um, very important topics to civilization that nobody was talking about. So that's kind of how I wound up doing, bringing Striking a Match to a video and why the video was like that and then the work on the execution of the song. Um, what else did I say about them? Because I can go on for hours. I've got to be really careful. <laughs> the, uh, you're not doing those with your little Walmart camera still, are you? Well, I mean, you have to, okay. You have to have someone helping you produce that. Here's the story of the cameras. So I started with a little $15 bubble wrap camera from Walmart with the SD card and the two AA batteries. Mm-hmm. And I made the first few like that, and, you know, everyone was getting good response. I was learning more about it. Um, I produced every – there's only one video I ever did with uh, another camera person, and that was the Demon of Providence, because I had the two people, and I was on camera so much. Um, And I went back to filming alone because I really like – I like everything you can do with it. So I went, and of course, then it goes to your head, and I go, well, I have things in a film festival. I'm going to get a professional camera. So I got a professional camera. I think I've used it like twice. <laughs> and you know what? I, I like, because 
and it, this was a funny thing I learned. Because I basically make my videos for YouTube, you know, that's when I picture how people will see my videos. It's on a small screen. It's on their tablets, on their phones. Mm-hmm. The professional cameras are too good. You know, there's too much detail. And I need something that has a limited focus ability so I can, I'm really making something designed for these small screen presentations. So I honestly have gone back to using the much cheaper cameras. And I've just learned so much, like to shoot something like the Executioner song, which I think it's five or six minutes long, that's actually 28 hours of footage. I was going to say, because there's so much editing done in that. I mean, it's just it's phenomenal. It's absolutely phenomenal. I can understand exactly yeah. why they're being shown and winning awards and things like that. I mean, they're incredible. Half the editing, have at least six hours of editing per video, because it's about 32 to 48 hours of editing for a five-minute video for me. About six hours of that editing is editing out the cat's tail. Because she's actually in all my videos. And in the execution song, in the room with all the faces hanging, she mm. had so much fun <laughs> in there. And you can see her tail going through. So I have to chase her tail around. And that's, that's one, of the, one of the problems. So yeah, awesome. I, I found working with the videos, and it's like writing the music that goes with everything, has been because... It, a lot of people, and I think it was Moon Cookie mentioned, there are songs that stick with her and they come out in her pieces. She said that in the um, the chat room. And I find that there's an element to poetry that's so musical that it's almost like, well, this is a, more lines to the poem. And then having the visualness of the, the video, I, I don't think I'm good enough as a poet yet to be able to write what I really would like Day, so I have to use the video and the music too to fill it out. You know, so it's, one it's someday a, you'll see you'll see a blank screen <laughs> <laughs> with the poem on it because I've got it right. You know, but for me right now, it's an essential part of the poem. You know, as you were talking about in your workshop, which kind of relates, is being able to recognize. You were asking people what they're passionate about, and. Yeah. Then once you realize, you know, you ask yourself, why are you passionate about it? And you start to say, you know, do you get a headache? Does your heart, you know, and you start talking about how to listen to the physical response that you have to something to tell you where that passion is coming from. Is it coming from fear? Is it coming from, you know, um, I I thought that was absolutely just it, it was amazing the way that you went into that because it made me look at it a whole different, made me look at it completely different than I'd ever looked at it before. Yeah, it's it's something I've I've become much more aware of as I grow older because part of what I do when I'm not writing poetry is I'm teaching people either meditation or pain management or qigong or different ways of handling stress in life. And what's really come up is um, how disconnected people have come from their bodies. And so many people use uh, music and poetry because it, it makes them feel something they can identify. 
you know, and they're like, okay, I know what this, what this is. So I've started working more with people with, okay, let's, let's start with you in your daily life and let's see where you feel it in your body. And I'm realizing what an important thing that is and what a powerful thing that is in the relationship of words. When I, like when I said, you know, you have to be able to write your words in their body. That's a very, that's not a new idea, that's a very old idea, you know, but somehow that we we forgot that for a while, but people still look for it. That could be a whole workshop all in itself. Oh, my goodness. That could be, yeah, endless, endless workshops on that, you know. <laughs> well, now, you, now we've planted a seed for your next one. <laughs> All of the writing that you do, I mean, you are very socially conscious. You you write you write topics like you said before. The same reason that your videos and stuff are getting the attention that they're getting. You write on the hard topics, the things people don't want to think about, the things that people don't want to talk about. Where do you think that comes from in you? You know, how did you get started on that? Why are you not writing about fluffy bunnies? You know, what what is it? Where 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 was that seed plant? When was that seed planted? How did it grow? And do you know? Do you, do you Oh, well, I think I've been through enough therapy by now. <laughs> I, think, I think I might have an inkling. Um, I think a large part of it comes from the way that I grew up. And in how I grew up was very, I think a, a nice way to put it is tumultuous in my very early years. But what struck me, um, we had a lot of, a lot of deaths, a lot of, incidences, all sorts of things. And as a very young child, first of all, you're a young child and these are all adult things going on. So you kind of get excluded from them, but it's not like they're not affecting you. So you feel very much like an outsider. And the other thing I notice is that all of these adults who as a child not involved, you see everybody's upset about something. But you also see how everybody feels like they're the only one going through it. And it really made me very aware of um, loneliness. And I'm very aware of my own loneliness growing up. And then just my experiences going from there into, like, the military, where you could be surrounded by, you know, a thousand people all dressed exactly alike, and you are completely lonely because you are numbered. You know, Mm -hmm. that's why... If you go through and you listen to the workshop, if I get a little, I got to find it, I got to get out my thesaurus. You know, I, I'm always talking about, you know, you have value. Every individual person has value. And that's something that, you know, we don't grow in a world right now that teaches that. You know, we teach you that you're deeply flawed and maybe you'll be worth something if you can get X, Y, and Z. And that's not true. That's ass up. You know, you start. Mm-hmm with value, and I never lose that. But, you know, it's, it's, it's something that's, as I work more with hospice and with different um, disadvantaged populations and with poverty and homelessness, you know, it's like I'm seeing the result of living in a, in a culture like that where we teach people to not worth anything unless they've got you know, the car, the family, the this, the mm-hmm. that, the job, you know, and then I get them at the end of their lives 
And I know that the only thing that they really value is that somebody else thought that they had value in the sense of love. You know, so that's kind of kind of been my whole shtick. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's like when I wrote the Executioner's song, that was a very interesting piece for me to write because when I was younger, I was, oh, I was an, an ardent advocate of the death penalty. Um, you know, I even signed petitions for it with all of this stuff. And then I went into the military and I came out and I wasn't really thinking that maybe I didn't believe that anymore. And I wound up reading um, Dead Man Walking by Sister uh, Helen Pajon. And then I wound up meeting her on a uh, nuclear uh, thing that she was doing. And what got me wasn't what she said about the people on death row. That's not what got me. What got me was her advocacy that is rarely talked about that says before someone goes and befriends someone on death row or works for them, they must go talk to the victim's family and have a relationship with them and give the same effort to them that they give to this other person, even if that other person they think is innocent. And it's just that recognition of, you know, there's continuity, there's connection, every life has value. It's like a return to balance, I guess. Makes perfect I'm sense. Walking, yeah, I'm walking around in the dark, waving my arms because I got a new hand straight. <laughs> so we do have some callers online okay. who would like to speak with you. So let's go ahead and bring a couple of those on, Cassandra. Okay. Yep. Okay. So, area code 585, you are on the air. Hi. Uh, this is Sean. How are you? Hey, Sean. Hi, how Sean. are you doing? Uh, uh, well, um, I um, I wanted to know what inspired you to write a Requiem for a God. Is it, oh. Uh, yeah. Um, I well, honestly, what inspired me to write it was that I had was going through a change in my life, changing career, changing everything, um, and I was realizing it had come right after I had been diagnosed with cancer, and then received successful treatment for it, but you know had that time frame where they're like, "Oh, you might not live." came out and was just sort of clearing my life and I realized there were so many things that I had put so much stock in as being external, you know, as being the good things. If I had them in my life, that made me a good person. Mm -hmm. And I recognized that, no, they didn't make me the good person. I was the good person. You know, and it, but it, I also at the same time recognized that for that time I needed that there in my life. And just to give you um, a little bit of, let's see, I'm Buddhist, but okay. I had a little, yeah. I had, I had a little rebellion against Buddhism when I was younger. <laughs> I rebelled like all kids did, so I became a Christian. 
and I went mm-hmm. so far as to almost be ordained in the Episcopal Church. And it was my life and soul until um, things changed again and I wound up coming back to my original faith. And it was hard for me to let go of that and yet also honor it and see that what I did believe still had value because it helped shape me. You know, the good and the bad of it helped helped me become who I was. And, and the Requiem for God is about, you know, change. It's about giving up what you clung to as your identity because you mm-hmm. realize you're real without it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like the whole, the Zen, um, like, uh, like letting go and you know, of attachments and everything. Like, but then I saw that to hear your practitioner of Zen, right? Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah you know, that's a big tenet of that, yeah. yeah. Well, and one of the main teaching stories they, they have about the concept of letting go is of a whole bunch of students showing up the monk going, teach me, teach me. And he says to the hundred or so potential disciples, well, whoever among you is willing to disown your former teachers, step forward. And they all do, but but one person who won't disown his former teacher. And the old monk says, well, you're the only one I'm going to teach because if you would disown what taught you earlier, what would ever would you learn from me? You know? So it's it's building blocks. Every every stage of life has its building blocks. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Is it? The, the music, the, the video is, is is excellent too. It's like kind of pay, um, uh, pay collect the fun, pay fun, and he's just like, oh, and oh you're, yeah, and you're talk, yeah, you're you're talk, looks looks like you're like talking to someone, but you're you're talk, you're you're, ta- you're talking to like God or the um. Like a divine version of, of of yourself or something. I don't I don't it's, know. What the, what... It's all of that actually. So, okay. <laughs> it, wow. It, it wow. shifts wow. back and forth. You know. It, you know. Mm-hmm. First it's like, then by the end it's really you know when basically what happens at the end is I wind up shooting myself and taking the mask off. Yeah. Know? And that. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's multi layered. And that that's yeah. something I tend to do a lot is to make multi layers so you can watch it. Yeah. And depending on how you want to take it, it reads a little bit different. Yeah, like as you mentioned something in there, like um, oh the, the um, oh the monks that that monks and it, they, they have um a part of part of it was say like how well, monks disrespect silence because they they're not understanding the um the the fruit the fruit of action within yep. life as well and you're you mentioned that and that that struck me in there too like wow yeah that because i i mean I, even when i like been to a zen center it almost is like that's one of the part of the of extreme of it too is that the the monks will go that far they'll go that far where everything is detached from from life and they're they're just meditational and that's it they don't want to under. They don't want to embrace the all of 
you know, the fruit of life, too, and the action that goes along with it. And that you, you said that in there, and that's, uh, yeah, really, uh, it was a good, uh, yeah, it was a good line. You had a few good lines about that in there, yeah. Yeah, I, I like that line. And that line turned out to foreshadow things for me because I was really mm-hmm. starting to to grasp and, and put into words for myself. I, a lot of times I use poetry to to kind of solidify what I'm thinking and feeling so I can do something with it in my life. Mm-hmm. And like now one of my jobs is I'm actually the spiritual director for all of New England for oh, a wow. business group. Yeah. And one of my jobs is to chase people around and go, get off that cushion and go do something. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's cool. That's awesome. Yeah, That's awesome. you know, and talking about, you know, you, you can't just sit there and think that you're thinking good thoughts. You, there have to be, you have to have an external effect around you to show mm. you, you know, that you, there's an effect. Mm. So. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that that's why the the big one I'm working on, the city of love, you know, that's that one's you know, I got to a point where I'm like, Okay, I have to sit down and really write this because it's it's almost like a life philosophy for me that I'm writing. And oh, wow. it's a, it's a little frightening to be getting to the the towards the end of it and I have a fabulous writers group I write with and to see their reaction and hear that they're getting these things that I didn't ever think I would be able to say. You know, it's just, it's a really powerful thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. really is. Yeah, and, and, and at, in the beginning of that, it, it can be tough because you have, you may, you may be, um, you try, like you were saying, like when you're trying to preach to a choir, some of that comes with like resonating with the right kinds of poets and writers around you. And mm-hmm. sometimes in the beginning, you'll you'll be trying to write, and and you or you write certain kinds of pieces, and you think certain poets are are good to connect with, but then they're not, and they end up mm-hmm. not being so good to connect with. <laughs> and then other people, yeah, and that's part of the process too. It's like, oh, and then, and then, then you learn. But you learn though. There's there's something you learn from that those experiences as well. Like you were saying, like, oh, okay, it's it's not it, that didn't work as well so much. But there's there's like there's like pieces within that that teach you other poems that you can write like from the oh, memories yeah. of, of that, you know, of of those connections that you may have made that didn't work so well. Like when you're mentioning that uh, Brave New World piece, like, mm-hmm. yeah, you, 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 you heard the guy that it, he did, maybe he didn't maybe later on he could he, he could piece it together better through, through listening uh, to uh, other writers or maybe he got more inspiration and from different yeah. people he bonded with, you know, and it, it really, then, then it, then it, then it got to him later, you know, you never know. So oh. that's, that's the interesting part about it. You know, that's what I love about it too. Yeah. One of the new, one of the new projects I have going on that's sort of in that vein, which I'm, I'm, 
I can't wait to see what happens. It's either going to go really well or really bad. <laughs> um, I actually, the the rap channel that I mentioned on YouTube, the How to Rap DVD, yeah. I, that came to my attention because I wound up in a conversation with someone about rap and rhyme structure in it. And it became very obvious I had no clue about it, so they sent me to see some of it, and they really break it down. And as yeah. they broke it down, I fell in love with the structure. And so now I'm going back to one of my earliest books that I, I collection of poems that I have, and I'm rewriting them into the rap structure. Wow. Um, yeah, so this this is, and considering that the City of Love is so old-fashioned, to work on the two of them side by side is really fun. <laughs> like I said, it's either, you know, I'll probably make a little video or something, but it'll be like, you know, private. You have to have the link. <laughs> Just, you know, cool. <laughs> this could go south so fast. but uh, It really forces, plugged. <laughs> it really forces <laughs> you to... Like, if you try to do that, like, for instance, like, like, even myself, like, I've, li- I like, I will just listen to a lot of, like, hip-hop instrumentals or try to just catch a drum beat and then write, like, lines of poetry to see if I can get that, that, that snare drum or that, that beat that it, that it plays, you know? Or I'll go into, or in the past, I've even gone into, like, hip-hop ciphers, and I just get in there, and I just freestyle along with them and see if, how, if I can even do it. Yeah. And it, like, forced me to, like, tr- at least try. Like, even if I sucked. So, like, a lot of times I would just suck, you know, too, so it was terrible. <laughs> and, and other people, like, had, they actually had rhythm, you know. And you know, yeah, I had the, I had the guy, had one of the guys in R- Rochester that was like one of the best freestylers. Like he'd just come off and just say whatever was on his head, and he would be rhythmic. And I'd be like, damn, you know. But but it, for, it really like forces you to try to like I understand I get what you mean. Like it forces you to like be um, more slick and rhythmic with your poetic, you know, like lines that you come up with, you know? Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. It's, it is It's turning out to be very interesting. But I think it's, like I said, I don't know what it will actually end up being like, but I have a feeling the poetry I write maybe three or four years after it is going to have the effect of it. And Black Butter, he's, he's amazing with that. Oh, wow. Like, mm-hmm. Most stuff is, too. Like, if you hear most yeah. stuff like that, oh, yeah. he's incredible. Like, it just it's really smooth, you know? Yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. Sean, you asked some great questions. This was awesome. See why I wanted you here? Remember I told you I wanted wanted to make sure you didn't miss this? I knew you would enjoy it. Yep. Yep, that was great. <laughs> All right, sweetheart. We're gonna to get to our next caller, but I wanna thank you for calling in and being here tonight and I'm really glad you enjoyed it. I knew you would. Yep. Have a All good right, night. sweetheart. <laughs> you too, baby. <laughs> Bye-bye. All right. Night, Sean. Yep. Bye. Okay. So our next caller is from area code 216. 216, you're on the air. 216, this is Ola Deji. And, um, hey, I've Mama. Been, hi, I've been listening and really getting a lot out of what she was saying. 
and I want to thank her for doing this for us. Oh, you're quite welcome. Uh, I didn't know that you were the uh, spiritual advisor to the whole of England. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) No, New England, New England. Oh, New England. Okay, well, still, you know, that's a a big responsibility. And um, I was listening to what you said at the end. I did miss the execution um, poem, so she said she was going to play it again. I was all gung-ho to get here and um, inviting people, and I fell asleep. Um, in my anxiety, so I missed 23 minutes, but um, I did hear the parts that um, were important for for me to hear. But the one Mm -hmm. thing I didn't hear and I wanted to ask is um, I've been accused of not writing in the first person, writing in the third person, and also being a removed person from my poem. Is that what, what, why, what, can you count in maybe say is that a good thing to write in the first person or third person or is it really a bad thing to be removed from your from your poems and act like you're not that you it, need to, it, I, I, I it can't all explain it. <laughs> it all depends on the type of poem you're you're wanting to write. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you you got a chance to hear the recording earlier of the poem Tortures by Liz Lawa. Mm-hmm. I did hear that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a third-person poem. You know, the body is it. It's it. It's you. It's they. That's mm-hmm. not written in the first person at all, yet when you hear it, it sounds like it's about you. Okay. So, you know, probably what someone, it sounds like someone's saying something to you and saying it in a very... Um, like they don't know how to say it in a not bad way. Mm-hmm. It sounds like the disconnect is coming from the fact that they're not hearing you speak to them. They're not hearing so what? Not hearing you speak to them. Okay. So when when you use a third person, you really want to be including the listener or the reader, you know, in either you're looking at another person or you're talking in the third person, but it's really about them. And that's just a matter of probably your symbols and metaphors that you're using. Mm-hmm. You know, it might be a little lack of consistency in them, but there is there is no better style to write in. It's good to try try each of them, you know, write in the first person, write in the third person, try each of them out. Jesse starts to learn what each can do, you know, so that if you're writing in the third person, as long as you know why you're doing it, mm-hmm. that's the first step. But this okay. literally, every poet writes and has their own decisions. There's no right or wrong way. To well, do. I, I didn't realize I was doing it. And every poem that I had in her workshop, she wanted me to change it to first person. And so I did. And... Um, then she gave me a you know like a better grade on the poem, but I still didn't really understand you know exactly why I wrote in third person or what was the relevance of changing it over. Um, yeah. Mhm. So that's why I was Wait. asking that question. And um, you know, the the um, one that I said about a removed person. Sometimes I do feel like I'm I'm removed from my poem and I'm speaking you know as an observer. Um, 
that's not actually feeling uh, what I want other people to feel. <laughs> <laughs> well, then that probably is just the metaphors you're choosing. Okay. You know, that's that's where that disconnect is. It's perfectly fine to be that observer, that reporter, but if you want, if you're doing it because you want other people to have an emotional response to what you're showing them, mm-hmm. then you have to be very careful that the visual imagery you're giving them is something that they're going to relate to. You right. know, and that's, that's something it just takes practice to learn how to do that. What I was going to say is if you'd like, if you want to email me um, those two poems, I can probably give you more specific feedback. Okay, uh, if they're over in uh, all poetry, um, all poetry, um, dot com. I'll go over and get the ones that um, she had me change over, and I'll, I'll send them. Uh, I'll get the email from from you, and I'll send them, and see what you think. But they've been changed over now, so um, I'll send the uh, the first version and the second version. And uh, the one more thing I want to say, okay, that was the executioner's song, which I didn't get to hear. And I heard you speaking about um, spirituality, and that was something that really concerned me as well because uh, I think I kind of went the same route you did. Um, I was exposed to, um, but you, I think yours was uh, vice versa. You were exposed to Buddhism earlier, and I was exposed to Christianity earlier, and then I was kind of exposed to Buddhism secondary, and because they don't proselytize or because they don't, uh, let you abandon what you already know and what you already feel in a spiritual way from other um, studies that you studied in religious um, um, uh, venues. And, you know, it allowed me to kind of like more be a free and be myself without actually giving up what I feel but experiencing something new um, and being accepted as what I've already experienced in life, rather than just like getting get, getting rid of everything I already knew before and felt, but yet still not making me hold on to beliefs that I just did not believe from a child. I mean, I just did not believe certain things. It just wasn't believable to me, and it it couldn't reach me in that way. So, which is all a part of me, you know my poetry. You know, it's all a part of my poetry, and I kind of uh, really appreciate what you said about that. And the last but not least. Um, I wanted to say that out of all you said uh, that I heard um, with the execution of song and, and the striking of match and recruiting and talking about uh, uh, recruiting is what I'm saying, that the second part of what you said, the first part was speaking to the choir. And I'm really concerned about that I do that too much, and I do want to reach the people that that would normally not be listening to me and I think that's one of the reasons why I do call um, into Nyla's show on Thursdays because I don't think that that's an audience that would would basically be hearing me if I didn't call in there. And I would definitely be speaking um, to the choir almost all the time if I was just if I was not to go there. So um, I really appreciate you bringing that up and out because I never really realized that, and I, I was kind of frustrated about myself. Um, not being able to, um, I didn't want to just be a poet's poet or, you know, people that already understood what I was saying as a poet. I wanted to reach a different um, people and touch different people through my poetry. So I kind of like what got out of it that um, 
I want people to be like sponges, and um, I'm speaking and spilling, and sponges are listening and soaking in. Now I want these sponges to go and squeeze themselves out somewhere relevant around people that I cannot reach, and I can get new recruits, um, even though I'm not the one that's actually telling them, but they'll get it through uh, these sponges that I create. Um, and if they speak clearly, they can under- people can understand what I was trying to say, and therefore, you know, um, I'll be reaching a different audience. So um, I really have to take that into consideration. And once again, I'm, I'm just going to listen for your uh, feedback. Are we still here? I'm here. I don't, I don't hear her. I don't know. If I she... think we lost Cassandra. Hang oh, on. Oh no. Cassandra. <laughs> Hello. Oh. Hi. Hi. So I actually I heard everything. I just flipped out for a minute and had to call back in. Oh my god. I, okay. I have to say that if the type of imagery you are using is at all close to how you just described wanting people to be sponges that go then go and wring themselves out um, for other people. That is phenomenal and beautiful, and I totally get that, you know. And that is sort of that third-person presentation, but you, but you get it on a the, the person who hears it gets it on a very personal level. So, yeah, I'm actually, I'm going to put my email address into the chat room. Okay. So you can just send me that. And also, if anyone else in the chat room wants to send me anything to look at, please feel free to go right ahead. Um, It's something that I feel strongly that writers should do for each other. Because I know it's hard to find groups um, to get feedback from. Mm Mm-hmm. But you know, I would I would really love to see what you've written. Well, you know. thank you, and uh, I'll be um, staying closely in touch with Nyla to um, make sure that um, I stay in touch with with you. And um, very much appreciate what you're doing for us as poets. And uh, thank you, Nyla. And I'm going to hang up and listen to the rest of the program uh, online. Oh, so I, can hear, I can hear better. I, I'm not hearing really as well as I was when I was listening online. So, All right, hon. Thank you okay. for calling in, Mama. <laughs> Great questions. Thank you. Bye-bye, hon. Okay. Our next caller comes from area code 928. 928, you're on the air. Hi, it's Ellen. Elizabeth. Hi, Ellen. Right. Elizabeth, how are you? I wanted to say thank you very much. This was very enlightening. I really enjoyed how you explained everything in not one but three different kinds of details. It it, it was very, like I said, informative. Um, I have one quick question. Okay. Um, It has to do with your religion. Mm Mm-hmm. You said you lost your religion and then you found it again? Um, I, went, you I, I think one. that's a, a fair way because I was brought up, uh, brought up in religion 
and then went to that period where I rebelled and didn't believe anything. And then when I decided it was time to believe something again, I was going to believe anything but what I was raised in. And um, it wasn't until my late 30s that I realized that, you know, I really was moving back in that direction but from a different standpoint. And it was it was kind of bittersweet for me because I was giving up what for a long time was my independence from, you know, my family, my history, my everything by being different, believing something different, you know. And I had to learn that it was okay to share a belief and that didn't mean you were like everybody else. You could still be an independent person. Okay. Yeah. That that that, that makes sense. Um, yeah. How do you get your mojo back? <laughs> I just <laughs> sorry. I just lost someone two months ago, and yeah. he was my muse. He was everything to me. Oh, so I'm sorry I, to hear that. Yeah, it it was a shocking thing that happened. It happened very quickly, um, but. I can't seem to get myself situated to sit down and write again and again. I just, the emotions are, are I feel like a cork has to come yeah. out and yeah. it's not coming out. Any any suggestions? What I can say is the, the way in the workshop I talked about how you wanted to write your words in someone's body. Um the way I firmly believe that the way that we work as people is our words get written inside our body first before we can even begin to bring them out. And when we go through loss, you know, and we can't write, it isn't that you've lost your mojo. The mojo never goes. It's just there's the hand of the universe or whatever you want to call it writing words inside of you right now. And your job is to be able to let that happen and then as it as it sinks in, then it comes out. So it's to be patient with yourself. You know? See, I've written so much about this, this man. Uh, I knew him since I was 11. So yeah. I have juvenile writing and young adult writing and mid-age writing and old lady writing all together <laughs> about yeah. the same person. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm 55. So yeah. I, I, uh, it's almost like uh, trying to write with your hand behind your back. Yeah. You know, but maybe that's, that's something that you can do until you until you're ready to write about the new stage of your relationship with him. You know, because it's not like he's gone forever. It's just the nature of your relationship has changed. And that's going to be another phase in your writing because it sounds like you're really writing a record of your lives together. Yeah, pretty much I was. Yeah. But now he's not here, so it's, you know, he's gone. 
No, he is gone. No, he is gone. But he's still very much a part of you. Yeah, that's something that, and I'm going to jump in here real quick because I went through the loss of someone here just a while ago, and one of the things, I mean, there's the initial grieving period that you're going to go to where nothing makes sense and nothing anyone says to you is going to matter and, and it's going to go in one ear and out the other and you're going to have to find your own way of dealing with it. But when you are going to reach a point, and I, I hate it when someone says, well, you'll finally get over it. Well, I don't want to get over it. I don't want to get over him. No, I don't either. You know, yeah. And so you learn to walk with it. Through life, you said that but the there, other day. there will come a place where you will realize, and I promise you this, but you will realize how many of his fingerprints are still on you, and how much oh. of him is still very much alive within you. The things that he gave you, the things that he embedded in you, those never leave. He's physically gone, but spiritually, you guys have a connection that cannot be broken. The fingerprints he put on you, the fingerprints he left on your life, will be one of the biggest comforts to you you've ever known and you will realize how much he really is still with you exactly and that's what I mean by saying you know you've written about all these other phases of your life with him well this is you're starting a new phase you know and you'll write about that too he's not here anymore and yet he's still a part of you and it's the relationship changes, but it doesn't go away. And But it's going to take a while until you find the words to begin to craft that. And just be patient. There's no time frames on this. Okay. <clears throat> it, it makes sense. Oh, you know, it might make sense, it might not make sense. Nothing makes sense. No, no, it, 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 make, it makes sense, but it still hurts. Uh, oh, my that. goodness, yes. You know, it's it's like Nyla said, I mean, a lot of times people will tell you, oh, you know, don't worry, things will get better. And I can tell you honestly that things don't get better, they get different. Yeah, exactly. You learn, you learn yeah. to walk with the loss. Yeah, you don't ever lose somebody that you love, and you don't really lose the pain of losing them, but you become better able to handle it as you learn to carry it. Okay. Okay. Thank you. You're very welcome, welcome, sweetheart. Very glad that you were able to call in. All right, I'm going to put you back on hold so you can listen. Yes, thank you. You're welcome, baby. All right. Okay, we do have one more caller. I'm going to go ahead and bring them on. Okay. James, are you with us? Hey, Fuzzy Hermit in the Woods. (laughs) Hey, well, hello, Mr. Hermit in the Woods. Hey, good to hear you. I have not heard your voice in years. It's been a while. I was yes. sad to hear about how bad the accident was. I didn't know it was that bad. Yeah, you know, so, it's, a, it's a constantly revealing thing. <laughs> yeah. I injure myself. Yeah. And I have this really 
odd intuitiveness about things, just real quick, that it just popped into my head like about three weeks ago. And I've yeah. been taking the Proxen for like 15 years. Yeah. And this thought popped into my head. Does long-term usage of NSAIDs, like Aleve, naproxen is prescription strength Aleve, cause muscle atrophy? So I Google it, and sure enough, mm-hmm. it does. Yep. Yeah. So um trying to stay away from it. I know what the chronic pain thing is, too. That can really do a number on your head. Yeah, yeah. Um, it can do a number on your head. It can do a number on your relationships. No, um, yeah. Well, your entire life. Uh, it can yeah. shut your life down. It can close you in. Um, lots of stuff. I want to uh, first thank you for doing another workshop. You're quite uh, welcome. I want to ask a question before I forget. When I was writing notes, I had a, uh, um, and I just had one, a a senior moment. Um, When you were talking about learning to to edit, you said to enhance the motion, and then you said, however, do not, and I missed that part, because then you said edit for continuity, and then symbolism, and then also edit for reading and for being hurt. What, what was the it word you said? Is? Uh, I, I, I think it was a few. It may have been a, a two or three words. And he asked for emotion, and then, however, do not. Not to push it away. Not you to know, push it be- away the emotion. Right, so you edit, because a lot of people, they shy, one of two things usually happens, either people don't edit because they think they're going to lose the immediacy of the emotion, or they get into a class or something that has them edit the emotion out, because a lot of um, people teach that you shouldn't see the poet in the writing, Um, and when you edit, you want to bring the emotion forward. You want to look and see where you've hidden it or where you've backed off from really saying what you're doing. And one of the easiest ways to do it is to edit for the rhythm, rhyme, and style. And if you can, it goes back to that concept of music and poetry together. If you can let the music of it carry you, it will point out where your false notes are. You know, so you'll know when you've shied away from saying something emotionally that needs to be said in the poem because it fits. And? And which one next? The continuity? No, I, I no? thought I thought my phone might have went for a second there. No, I think that was that was me going for a second. <laughs> okay. <Pooping out. laughs> okay. Did you have another question, James? Uh, not really, because you know how much I can yak. I mean, the questions from. Uh, everybody for me actually they all went down the psychology route 
And mm-hmm. uh, it, for me, you know, I'm thinking about the the piece that I wrote, uh, "My God, Not Your God." Uh, also, re, uh, the the piece. Um, um, oh, what's the entire title? Um, part of it's uh, what why I write. Um, mm-hmm. But all of mine is it, along the lines of you know. Well, it, I think it, it really actually holds true for everyone. Some are just more aware of it than others. That mm-hmm. uh, there's another piece that I wrote uh, in which it states that I've lived many lifetimes within a lifetime, mm-hmm. and and that we change, but people hate change, and I was a drunk and went the recovery route, fortunately, really early on. And I was like a dry sponge and soaked up everything I could. And fortunately, mm-hmm. I was around a lot of really good people. They also mentioned a lot of really good books to read, which I read. And, and um, I, I, I basically come from a place where it, everything, it's the old phrase, everything in life happens for a reason. And I, elongated it 20 some years ago to uh that you know and it's my responsibility to determine what i'm supposed to learn from it and that mm-hmm. i may learn right away it might take a few days or a week or a month it might take a few years uh, however i also have to accept the possibility that i may never learn Mm-hmm. And that an old recovery phrase is you, you can't keep what you don't give away. And Nyla knows that well, I write emotional stuff. And she picked up early on about how a lot of or most of my pieces usually end on a positive note. And at first it really, I don't know, it really was conscious ever. Uh, maybe a few times, but they just come, and it's it's because I've never lost uh, an intangible faith that I somehow uh, have some contact with. Uh, mm-hmm. I just believe. And um, the other thing I wanted to mention was is that with someone. If someone were to comment on my piece, I have to keep in mind that their comments are colored by their experiences. And what they say may not be correct or may be partially correct. And that someone, like Mama was talking about, someone saying they were detached, that that's that person's opinion and it may not be completely correct. And the way I write is in part that, I write for myself, not for any particular audience, and I write in a way I choose my words so that I can reach the broadest audience as possible. And a a phrase that I don't know if I ever heard it, but I started using early in recovery because I used to force myself to speak at meetings. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, I did it for 10 years. And I loved doing it. And 
I, the phrase I use it, and and I, and I use it with the writing is that I I talk in word pictures to help people understand uh, what what I'm trying to get across. Mm-hmm. Um, another piece I wrote for somebody that uh, was uh, something like today is this day is for you, and I and I started off with talking about the sunrise. Yeah, uh, and the colors, and um, uh, I guess uh, you know this is your show. Um, it just I just found the questions to be really fascinating. I could just go on and on and on. Well, you but you bring up something that was touched on um, a little bit by other people. I just want to pick up for a second. Is this concept of when you receive criticism for your writing or comments, or even if you're taking a workshop or a class, that the person's feedback is colored by their own experience. And that's that's mm-hmm. very, very true. And it can, especially if you're taking a, a class, it's a hard balance as a teacher, depending on what type of setting you're in, whether or not you can teach the class to help bring out better writing in each person according to that person's style and voice, or if your class is structured to teach specific items. You know, and it's I'm always hesitant when I hear that somebody has had somebody say to them, no, you need to write it this way, fix your poem you know well you know you you can't fix a poem you don't fix poems what happens is what you get out of that poem means you might write a better poem later down the line but there are a lot of people get tangled up in hearing that you know something's wrong with their poem it's not written correctly people didn't get what they were saying well a lot of that is maybe they're not the right audience for you. There's all different types of audiences. I mean, I mentioned I have a writer's group, and it took me years to find them, and I'm the only poet in the writer's group. And they graciously learned the style that I'm trying to write my poem in so that they could give me practical feedback, but then they also just give me feedback as just readers. You know, and they all have their different preferences. So I have to pick and choose um, which part of their feedback I'm going to take in, you know. And there's a, a couple people that if I write it and they don't like it, I know I've done well because they're not my audience. <laughs> and if <laughs> if they're suddenly liking the poem, I've done something wrong. <laughs> And I have a couple other people in the group that if they love it, I know I've done right. But that's because I know, you know, this person, I know who they are. They are not my audience. They just happen to be my writer's group. They have to read this. And that's You bring that's up a good where, point, Cassandra. How do, you, how do you decide who your audience should be for a poem? Well, that's, that's this couple different ways of looking at it. There's like kind of what we talked about, about who do you want to be your audience, but if you're talking about when you're looking to grow as a writer, um, and when you're looking, when you're just 
you know, formulating something and you want that critical feedback, you want a mix. You must have the, oh, my God, you're so talented, people. Whether you're writing a grocery list or whatever, you know, you have to have the people that no matter what you show them, they're going to tell you you're fabulous. You have to have that. But then you also have to have people who um, are going to look at the poem under and ask you what do you want feedback from. If they won't ask you that, tell them, I'd like to show you this poem. I'm looking to see if it's consistent. Do you understand? And be very specific with your questions so that they know. Because poetry is, is daunting even for poets to read and give feedback on, you know, and you will put too much of your own preferences into the feedback if the writer doesn't give you a framework. You know, I want to know, do you understand I'm, I'm going to the future, to the past, to the present? You know, is that confusing? You know, that's different from saying to someone, what do you think of this? And it's trial and error. I mean, you generally, I would say, pay attention to the lower portion of your stomach and the upper portion of your throat. If you give it, if you're, if someone's giving you feedback and either of those two areas tighten up, that is not the person you should be listening to because there's something there that you're picking up on that will not promote a constructive dialogue. You don't need to understand what it is, but those are the two parts common in the body that tighten up when you feel defensive um, and you don't want defensive people. I don't know that's, if that made uh, that's any That's really interesting. You did, you were, that's exactly what I was talking about earlier when you know, I talked about recognizing your physical reaction to things to understand where that emotion stems from. You did that in the workshop too. That just fascinates me, that whole concept. Yeah, it, it it really is. I actually had, this was years ago when I was in therapy, um, the question was whenever I had a date with someone, I would come in and my therapist would go, how did your date go? And I said, oh, wonderful, it was wonderful. She goes, did you have to take a nap after? <laughs> and I learned that if I met someone for the first time, it didn't have to be a date, it could be work, it could be anything. If I walked away from it and immediately had to nap, or sleep, or have downtime, I didn't need to have anything to do with that person. Because my body was so on guard while I was around them, for whatever reason. It was reason, exhausting. It was exhausting to me. You know. We used to call it the, the nap meter. It's a, a, a one or two nap person. Um, and then once you once you figure out one of those big physical clues about yourself, it becomes very easy to spot the subtle ones. You know, so I have people that in situations that I'll suddenly crave sugar, and I know exactly what that means. And it took me years to figure out why when I edit the videos, um, people used to ask me, well, when do you know that you're done with a video. And I'm like, well, that's easy. I'll just be editing and editing. I edit, watch it, edit, watch it. And all of a sudden, I'll burst out into tears. And since I burst out into tears, it's done. (laughs) (laughs) I don't really know why. It just seems to be how it's done. 
That's awesome. Okay, James, do you have any other questions? Did we lose him? Um, yes, we did. Let's bring him back on. Hi, James. Hi, I got some weird uh, BTR recording switch, and it hung up on me about, I don't know, 10 minutes ago, but I called right back and was able to get in. Very good. It's quick. happened about four times. Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, it's all, um, every everything you said is right on. I, I, I guess I, when I was listening to the people who were, uh, had called in earlier and were asking questions that I just kept thinking about core beliefs and mm-hmm. challenging your core beliefs. I've been trying to teach someone this um, because I had to do it myself. I mean, I was brought up in an Episcopal church, but because of uh, the way my family was, I never believed it. Um I don't believe in formal religion. Um, I I, ta- I started moving towards or was being drawn towards uh, Eastern philosophy when I was about 15 and started reading about it and first started reading about the Tao and a little bit about Buddhism and that's where I'm most comfortable. Uh, what I created was what I needed for myself, which is another thing they talk about in recovery, where there's a few different phrases. But it's like one that I I, I changed it because it was a negative. They say uh, take take what you can use and throw the rest away. Mm-hmm. I say take what you can use and leave the rest. Uh, it's just like I don't close any doors in my past. Some of them had been locked for a while because I couldn't deal with this stuff, and I was able to unlock the door, and then I was able to peek in the door, and you know now I'm able to leave some doors open, some doors are open to crack, but it's all emotional based, and there was something you said that I thought I keep going back to this book. It's so funny that this first counselor that I had after this the tinnitus and the depression and the anxiety started that she uh, she told me, she suggested that I read this book called The Drama of the Gifted Child by Alice Miller, who's a Swiss mm. psychologist. And mm-hmm. she quit psychology because she believed that the way psychology was structured at the time, that what a lot of what was going on was the psychologists because of their own histories, were actually either uh, making some of their patients' problems worse or cementing them, and that they were subconsciously diverting their patients off of the topic that they were talking about because it was too emotionally charged for the psychologist or the the counselor. And that kind of ties into with, you know, being around people that kind of it, sometimes they're referred to as energy leeches. I heard that like 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, people you just don't feel right around. Uh, but um, I think it's all about you know 
getting getting in touch with yourself, and it was great what you said about, you know, the feeling in the gut and the feeling in your throat, and uh, mindfulness really helps me out a lot. Uh, love, uh, teacher, you know, I, I well, how do you pronounce this? Is it Stitch or Tich Nhat Hanh? And uh, and uh, John Kabat-Zinn. Uh, great, great stuff. And um, some of the titles of John's books are great. Um, what was that one? Uh, something about uh, full chaos living or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like people, they they come from these their histories and they're just, they're used to living a life of chaos. And when things calm down, they freak out. Mm-hmm. And the challenge there is to learn how to be comfortable when there's less chaos rather than creating chaos. You know, James, it uh, sounds like that's a good start of a poem for you, talking about that. <laughs> I had to bring it back Unbind- to poetry, you guys. Un- Sorry. Un- un- unbind- <laughs> unbinding the chaos. <laughs> Yeah, Cassandra and I could go on here for hours, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, it was very good to hear from you again. I've missed you. Oh, and I, too, I was glad that I saw a link that you have a Facebook page again. So I'll uh, I'll send you a friend request unless we're friends. I can't remember. I think we are. Came back. I... I think you came so. back over a year ago, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So, but again, uh, one other thing I was going to mention, and this is on writing, was is that I actually haven't been writing, and this goes back to something. Um, oh, I feel so bad. I forgot her name. About you know losing um, her muse and mm-hmm. that Ellen and Ellen that I wanted to write for years. And it would never come out. I wanted to get a computer so I could write because I just didn't want to write because I scribbled chicken scratch. And I finally came to the realization that it wasn't time. And that things, I, to be honest, I have only written a handful of pieces since my parents died. You know, you know I don't know, Cassandra knows, but, my, you know, my mom... My mom died in, in July of 2010 from cancer, and then four months later, my dad was diagnosed with stage four prostate cancer and died uh, 26 months later uh, in October 2012. And he and I used to talk on the phone once a week and built a relationship we didn't have when I was younger. Um, and uh, so there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, but and I'm trying to remind myself of that that you know I don't have writer's block I've just had a lot of stuff going on not some of it not happy stuff some of it extremely you know sometimes you just stuff. have to stop and let your batteries recharge 
You know, you or need like to, because anything that's catastrophic that affects your life like that, it changes you as a person. And you need to let yourself settle down a little bit. You need to let yourself, you have to listen to yourself. You have to, you know, you can't expect to just, you know, sometimes your grown-up brain has to take dominance to make sure you're okay, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah and, and one thing else I wanted to mention, if Ellen's still listening, I, I'm spacing out the name, and I know I'm sure Cassandra will know because of this, what I know from what you've done. Who the, uh, oh, I just remember, uh, was it Elizabeth Kubler-Ross? Uh, mm-hmm. um, about uh, on death and dying, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Um, and to, for Ellen to read about the grieving process, because the grieving process can take a very long time. I mean, my, my dog Merlin was a psychiatric service dog to me, even though he was not professionally trained. I trained him every day, and I lost mm-hmm. him in August of 2008, and he still, it's, the loss still affects me now. There's still a, a void there that I, as Nyla was saying, I, I've learned to walk with it. Um, and I don't try and fill, fill, fill certain voids because I know from past experience that some can't. Uh, again, you have to learn how to walk with it, uh, mm-hmm. and learn how learn how to utilize it. And I like to say, you look at a problem from every angle that you can, and and once you've you've uh, identified and labeled or named the problem, stop focusing on the problem and start focusing on the solution. Because if you focus on the problem, you feed it and it gets worse. If you focus on the solution, it actually takes the power away from the problem. That's very true. Um, So, yeah, I, like I said, I could keep going on for hours. Um, <laughs> no, not so. you. Not you, James. Never. No, <laughs> it's that, that fuzzy, fuzzy mutt with the Irish gift of gab. Yeah, well, that's what it just, is. Just to, yep. to keep going, since we seem to be we segued into religion and grief, um, <laughs> another really good thing to look at uh, as far as grieving is something called the four tasks of grief. And you can find the simple version of them just by Googling the four tasks of grief. And it's a slightly better framework than Kubler-Ross. Uh, when she wrote her stuff, she it was a much more rigid understanding of grieving. And grieving is, is different for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks different, it lasts different, and there's the new thinking is that there are four tasks that have to be accomplished. And it's like Nyla said about the adult brain getting through, and the first of them is so difficult, and it is the most difficult part of breathing, and that's learning to live knowing that they're not coming back. What was and the name? What did you say? Google what? The four tasks, T-A-S-K-S, of grieving. I think it's William Whedon or something, Gilton. 
Um, but okay. that's now how they train people, and it's really distilled down that it's not not really because the stages yet yeah, the stages exist, but they're all out of order. You know, well, and yeah, that was and some people don't else. get some of them. You know, so the the four tasks are more you know they're process oriented, so you can kind of you know because when when you grieve, you know. People hallucinate. They do all sorts of stuff. They, you know, it can seem like it's going on forever. And all of that's normal. And it's just, it gives you a better sense of, well, how how does this process, how do I know how I'm moving through and moving to the place where I can carry this? And it kind of gives you little milestones to not only look for, but work towards, too. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, I um, I completely agree because yeah, everybody is an individual, and early on in recovery, one of the things that I had learned with it, there were certain people that were extremely rigid about things, and there were mm. some people that they used to call big buck, big book thumpers, um, mm-hmm. that uh, you know everything had to be by the book. And, you know, my sponsor says this or my sponsor says that. And sometimes you have to create your own tools. And that the grieving process is an individual process, and it doesn't happen step one, step two, step three, step four. it, It jumps around. And they talked about this in recovery where there's 12 steps, and you don't go from 12 from the first through the 12th step, and then you graduate. You may have to jump around, and then you have to repeat them as yeah. needed. And so that's your, that is your homework assignment, James. Uh-oh. You said you haven't written a whole bunch, <laughs> so I want you to write. That is your writing assignment. I want you to write about that in a poem, about the stages you, the, that you go through. I'll have See, to look you, them up t- again, you talk too long and talked yourself right into some homework. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there's there's the, the grieving and the anger and the sadness and the loss, uh, and you know, accept acceptance is at the end. And and something that I think that's extremely important about acceptance is, and I've tried to teach this to some people. That acceptance doesn't mean accepting where you are if you're in a crappy place. It means that you accept where you are and that it's not a permanent place. Now, you know, one thing I'm hearing, and not just from James, but from other people, um, because in the workshop I was talking about, well, how do you find your passion? How do you find what you're going to write about? You know, there's the event. But what has come up with just about every caller has been the concept of grieving, of loss, of um, of identity, you know, of belief. And all of that is very valid when you look at writing something that's going to speak to either people who believe the same thing that you do, that you want to keep engaged, or when you want to open up a dialogue, you know, among people. I mean, it's it's hard. We don't, as a society, tend to like to talk about religious beliefs or stages of grief. And within that is your poetic structure. 
you know, you can you can take everything that we've been talking about and take it further. And the way I, I said, you start by writing it out like a diary entry and get all the information down. Well, we just got all the information down, including books you can go look at. <laughs> you know, and now take it and turn it into your poem. You know, when Nyla said, James, free to go write about the stages of grief, you know, carry it a step further. You talk about you want to keep, you're trying to teach some of these concepts to someone will write that poem about it, but now it's to your challenge audience. How Which goes great with that? the title, Binding the Moon. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just like you, you mentioned how society is and, and that it's like everyone, at least in my experience, especially my, my, my parents, that it's like emotion was just totally feared. And I... I move towards it and have for probably close to 30 years. Uh, I, I don't always use the word confront because it can't have a, a negative connotation, but I face it uh, rather than running away from it or trying to bargain with it or go, you know, go around or over it. And sometimes I find that I have to immerse myself in it and actually have to physically allow myself to feel the emotion and then express it physically, you know, whether I get angry or I cry, uh, and and write, writing about it as well. Um, I mean, because that's what I mostly write about is, is personal experiences um, but, uh, yeah, I guess that's that's why I, I like the, the mindfulness stuff so much. Um, to re- reconnect the head with your mind with the rest of your body. And you, I think you mentioned something briefly about breathing and that mm-hmm. breathing is extremely important. And I'm a, I know I'm a shallow breather. I still am, even though... You know, I have to consciously take time m- multiple times a day and focus on it for a while because that shallow breathing can actually cre- create or aggravate anxiety because mm-hmm. you're not getting enough oxygen. There I'm going again. <laughs> <laughs> All right, James, I'm cutting you off. No more coffee for you. Uh You asked some great questions, babe. I appreciate you calling in. And uh, well, everybody did. You always bring great insight. Thank you. You're very welcome. So you want us to throw you back on hold so you can keep listening? Sure. How much longer is it going on for another 20 minutes? We have about another 18 minutes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. All right, babe. Great talking with both of you. All right. Bye, sweetie. All right. Okay, so we have a little bit of time left, um, Cassandra, and I want to just kind of turn that over to you to share some closing closing thoughts or, you know, inspirational words of wisdom, just whatever's on your heart to share right now. Well, I think... 
I think the one thing that I hear the most from people, you know, just watching the comments, getting the messages I've gotten in, the questions that come on, is that so many people have something they want to say, not to say because, um, you know, they're delivering a speech here, listen to me, but to engage and connect to an audience that people are starting to really look for. Well, how do I form a a connection with a give and take that goes beyond the poem. You know, it's like if you have a favorite poet, you know, you usually have them throughout your life and you go you go to them and during different stages of your life, the different things happen. You know, I've got my happy poet, I've got my sad poet, I've got the the three poems are the only three poems I've ever memorized. I've never even memorized my own poetry, but I've got like three poems memorized by other people that <laughs> They, I always return to them, but I'll return to them when I'm happy, sad, you know, grief-struck, angry, and I hear them in different ways. And that is a relationship with that poet, with that poem. And I hear people wanting to know how to do that. And for me, that goes back to that, that idea of the loneliness. How do you ease that loneliness? You know, and the way that you do it is you just start trying. And some people will hear you and some people won't. And if people don't hear you, well, go turn around and say it to somebody else. And you just keep speaking. You just keep writing. You know, there's no, there's no end to it. There's nobody who comes along and says, I'm sorry, you failed the course in being a poet. You know, you, you're not allowed to do this anymore. You know, it's it's a lifelong commitment, and it's a lifelong commitment that's got a little bit of danger in it, that you have to put yourself out in the line and, and try new things and speak to new people, but that's how you make it a living thing. That's basically my reason. Great advice, oh. great insight. You are always a thrill to talk to. You just are one of the most incredible human beings that I know, and I am so glad, like I said in the beginning, I'm so glad that you agreed to do this. Um, and, and please, you know, seriously, I cannot even... Uh, I cannot even uh, think of the word to describe how serious I am. That's how serious I am. <laughs> about, you're welcome to come back and do a workshop anytime on anything that your little heart desires. I mean, you just have so much to share and so much information inside of you and just it, the way that you're able to reach out and touch people and, you know, it's just incredible. So I, I a thousand times and again, thank you for doing this for us. And thank you for asking me, and I can't tell you how much I get out of it and how much talking to people who call in, it does a lot for me too. And I am very grateful for it. And I'm incredibly grateful to you, Nyla, for starting all this. <laughs> I, I, it's very selfish on my part, trust me. I could <laughs> sit and listen to you. Are you kidding me? <laughs> all right, sweetheart. So start thinking about your next workshop idea. And let me know when okay. you're ready. Okay. Mm-hmm. And as I said before, um, I am going to uh, play Executioner's song to close out the show. 
I want to thank everybody for being here and the callers who called in, all of you who are there listening, um, for being here today. And uh, it was just phenomenal, a phenomenal night of sharing. And uh, Cassandra, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. sending you virtual roses right now, okay? <laughs> Good. You get you, you get a standing, standing ovation here. <laughs> thank you very much again. You're welcome. All right, you guys, we're going to close out the show with Cassandra Tribe's Executioner's Song again. You know, think about the things that she talked about during her workshop uh, and see if you recognize that now within this piece. I do have her links on the show page, so if you would like to connect with her um, on Facebook, it's uh, facebook.com forward slash Cassandra.tribe. Okay, and uh, her other links are on there to YouTube and her video and everything, and you can contact her. I know she'd be happy to hear from you. So this is Cassandra Tribe with Executioner's Song, and good night, everybody. My hour of worship is midnight, the moon bright off your flame. I am the hope of forgotten men. God in a world without blame. Cross, blankets, body thought. Sometimes it cushions with thee. Food is proof of kindness, kindness bargained for peace. Prayers are said, permission loomed, so it begins. Death enters the room. The life that waited retreats from the world. The soul is forgotten, the body pieced by words. Death will go back to living until he is needed again. Memory will be argued by no one called a friend. Compared to a soldier fetid for killing in the name of caprice, death in the peace is kept hidden. Blind justice fails its increase. Even on battlefield, there is no faith. Even in war, Rules contain blame. At home where soldiers are bootless, death is recruited and paid, service requested and rendered, secrecy hides all blame. Judas fed coins to soil, the only seeds that ever grew, trees to watch the world, and man as he stumbles through. Bright moon finds swaying face to hide and reveal again. Flashes of effort misplaced, spun chance revealed forsaken. In solemn place, the body strapped down and blinded still communicates. Press wafer provides the food, food to assuage the weak, leaving the body hungry, crying one last speech. Bright moon finds swaying face to hide and reveal again. Flashes of effort misplaced, spun chance revealed forsaken. 
I have gone to husbands who were fathers. I have gone to wives who were mothers, wanting them to serve solid food better. The plate they gave me was empty, though to a sound just so, hoping I wouldn't notice, broke finish, mold, and go. Brother and sister after forgot me and argued on how, when wine had been flowing so freely, their cups were empty now. Not agreeing with any reason, they decided each other to slur, the wine soaked into the ground, no pool of bliss anymore. No one in this world that loves secrets revealed wants to know the why of I am. Even the Christ on the hill was asked the source of his plan. I am the secret son of faith who chose a different stand, following words inspired but written by human hand. My temples you'll find in castles filled with forgotten men, each of them sacrifice food to men's growing sin. I am the one who goes on, the one who should be condemned, but I make the sleep of the world quiet dismissed for kin. One day, the world will go blind, and in blindness, finally see. The flame on my altar will fade, and midnight will never be. Till then, I am always invited, false promise of life believed, for I am the Christ of the chamber. These castles only I enter, yet rule I both now. Help! My family's hosting an epic Memorial Day barbecue, and we need to look as legendary as our spread to kick off the summer right. Get to Old Navy. Old Navy? Yep, starting tomorrow. Splash into summer with an incredible 50% off all tees, all tanks, all shorts, all dresses, and all swimwear at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Wow, 50% off all those styles? Now that's epic. So is this. Tees start at just 6 bucks, but hurry, it ends Monday. 50% off and tees from 6 bucks? Old Navy, here we come. High fashion, Old Navy. Valid 525 to 528. Excludes clearance, active, licensed flag products, and men's packaged. You've reached the High Fashion Hotline. Help! My family's hosting an epic Memorial Day barbecue, and we need to look as legendary as our spread to kick off the summer right. Get to Old Navy. Old Navy? Yep, starting tomorrow. Splash into summer with an incredible 50% off all tees, all tanks, all shorts, all dresses, and all swimwear at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Wow, 50% off all those styles? Now that's epic. So is this. Tees start at just 6 bucks, but hurry, it ends Monday. 50% off and tees from 6 bucks? Old Navy, here we come. High Fashion, Old Navy. Valid 525 to 528. Excludes clearance, active, licensed flag products, and men's package. 